there was a very well-known English restaurant and television critic and travel writer named A.A. A. Gill. It's a great pleasure to be here with uh, Adrian Gill, A.A. A. Gill, and Anthony Bourdain. Thank you very much. And Adrian was one of the first writers that I began to work with, and he was famous in the UK as sort of a hitman. You know, he would just go to a restaurant, he would just trash it in such hilarious terms, and just literally put it out of business. And he really sort of attacked snobbism in many ways. The most depressing term in all of gastronomy is fine dining. I think he became known as a snob, but I think he was it was less that he was a snob and more that he sort of attacked snobbism in really funny ways. And he became, you know, a really big critical star in the UK. And Graydon really wanted to get him to America to start doing this, his sort of style. In the late 90s, the store Jeffrey had just opened over on West 14th Street. And, you know, it was a it was a beautiful store, but it was really pretentious. It was just that weird fashion that that you think no one actually wears. And it was men's clothes and women's clothes. And it was kind of absurd. And the salespeople were were all kind of ridiculous and kind of really judgmental of shoppers and would sort of, you know, look at people and be like, no, don't get that. Hi, can you help me? No. No. I think actually Saturday Night Live spoofed the store, Jeffrey. Yeah, look, we don't carry diesel. We work at Jeffrey's. We read Italian Vogue. It's our deal. I don't come to where you work and knock the corn dog out of your hand. We brought Adrian over to basically just trash this place and insult the owner, which was a guy named Jeffrey Kalinsky. We're going to the Dolce Gabbana show. How fast can you have your bags packed for Milan? Jeffrey even posed for pictures. He was very, very excited, I think, to have a Vanity Fair story. And Adrian turned in this story that was just really, really brutal and really, really funny. I I had mixed feelings about it. I mean, it was almost cruel. From Justine Harmon and Audio Chuck, this is Killed the podcast that brings dead stories back to life. Season 2, Episode 8, The Heyday. What does an editor do? How do I explain this? To succeed as a magazine editor, you must be kind of clairvoyant. You need to have this uncanny ability to know not what's happening now, but what's next. You need to be able to watch a movie months before anyone else and pinpoint exactly the moment that everyone will be talking about. To know when a hot actor or a moment in fashion is over. You might call all this a soft skill, but the people who are good at it, they see things, things other people don't see. And then they get some other people to write about them. My name is Dana Brown. I am a writer, screenwriter, producer, but for many, many years, I think 23 in total, I worked at Vanity Fair magazine and I forcibly left in 2018. uh, And I was the deputy editor at that point. Dana Brown's lengthy reign at Vanity Fair 
ended in 2018, a year many consider the last gasp of magazine journalism. Uh, they didn't like have us escorted out of the building. Those times had changed, but Condé Nast, they literally used to escort people out of the building. Dana is the first to admit he stayed at the media party a bit too long. The first time I really noticed it was when I had a new assistant. This box was delivered to her from office services, and I'm sitting there in my office watching them take out this giant blue ball that looked like an exercise ball. And they put it in this little frame, and they put it in front of her desk and took her chair away, and she was sitting on a bouncy ball. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? What is that? 23 years is a long time at a legacy magazine. That's like four to five generations of people who think they run shit to get through. But his Vanity Fair, it was something to hold on to. I was there in in the age of like, of just these massively thick magazines with so much advertising. There was so much money coming in. We were so successful. His Vanity Fair was gilded. Free of social media, flush with cash, and run by white dudes with preppy names in this weird moment in time when it was kind of cool to be a cultured dick. A time when it was still okay to stick up your middle finger at the man, while sort of also being the man. Hello, you've reached the winter of our discontent. I started working there, I was 21 in 1994. We weren't paid a lot of money. I think $16,500 was my starting salary in 1994. The lifestyle that it gave you, though, made up for it. We had, like, basically free use of Lincoln Town Cars. Like, whenever we wanted to go anywhere we wanted. We had, like, this magical petty cash system. Petty cash. Petty cash? It's office money. It's called petty cash. Where you would literally just, like, fill out this form, go to this window on, like, the ninth floor, and they'd give you hundreds of dollars. And then you would just turn in receipts even though like 80% of them were complete bullshit. And presiding over all of this was one man, Graydon Carter, a man who had risen the ranks as the preeminent shit-talker of the rich and powerful with his satirical counterculture magazine, Spy. But when you stop and take a closer look, as we will tonight here at the offices of Spy magazine... Fame turns out to be a very complex affair. Only to become the holly jolly king of a magazine for the rich and powerful. We were the culture of exclusive. Aspiration and exclusivity. We tried to create this world in these pages with pictures and words that people really wanted to be part of. It was it was fancy dinner parties and beautiful houses and beautiful places. But it was people who were interested in a certain world and a certain place. And they liked mid-century society stories. And they were into the Kennedys. And there was a nostalgia and all that. We were trying to scale and appeal to a very large audience. So you wanted to make sure that every issue had a little bit of something. For those people that were really interested in European society scandals, like you want to have that story. You want to have the beautiful house story. You have to have that. You know, you have to have a murder mystery story. You know, there's the, the Hollywood thing. It was it was really about that mix. 
The body of 34-year-old Nicole Brown Simpson, ex-wife of O.J. Simpson, was found after midnight. The whole O.J. Simpson thing happened literally like six weeks after I started. And so the first year and a half of my job at Vanity Fair, it was like all O.J. all the time. Back up, Like there were TVs on in every office with the trial. You know, Dominic Dunn, who was a writer for the magazine, basically moved to L.A. for a year and a half and covered the hell out of that. Maybe we will. <laughs> In any case. You know, it was also the beginning of the 24-hour news cycle. And, and, you know, the Internet was still kind of in its infancy, not really around. It was sort of janky. But, like, television news, 24-hour news channels were covering O.J. 24-7. O.J. Simpson stories. O.J. Simpson. This case is a circus. And so how do you then, how do you have someone cover something in a monthly magazine that every single network in the globe is covering in such incredible detail? It was like the last great moment of the monthly magazine colliding with a news story. It was sort of like the last gasp of that. Everything at Graydon Carter's Vanity Fair was predicated on taste, on pedigree, on word of mouth. How would you know if a story made waves? You could just feel it. We had no research. We didn't do anything. There was no internet that would give you any information. And and by the way, we didn't want any information. We didn't want to be able to tell advertisers that stuff. There was just like a boozy lunch where you'd be like, hey, look, our numbers are up 10% this year and our circulation is now at 1%. Point three, three hundred fifty thousand, and those are people you want to reach because look at the magazine, look at the magazine. They're all going to be reading this, and they all have disposable income, and they're all college educated, and they all have two cars, and they all, and it was kind of bullshit. You know, it was like a, it was like a bullshit industry. It was all a well-spun story, told by gifted storytellers, and reinforced by a mythos. And a kick-ass Oscar party. It's the best party of the weekend. What are you, crazy? If you're not here, you better be out of town. That was how we judged the stories. Are people talking about this? I mean, there was literally no science to it because there were no metrics. Aside from the sort of like cafe society buzz that you would get. You know, you would go to a dinner and someone would be like, oh my God, I read that story. That was so amazing. You know, or maybe it got optioned for film. And that became part of the buzz. Like, oh, that story was so good. Oh, it's going to be a movie. Oh, everyone in Hollywood is talking about it. Or you would judge it on whether it got picked up by the press. You know, we had a, a hardcore PR department that was sending out stories to magazines, newspapers globally to pick this story up, to pick that story. If there was a story about a, a scandal in France, they would send it to the press in France and get pick up. There would be a report at the end of every month with a, a giant packet of photocopied, you know, literally printed photocopied paper that some poor intern probably had to spend half a day on of just all the press clippings of the stories and, and where they went. You know, that was it. That was it. It was it was like human contact and, and press clippings. And so a magazine editor's job was almost instinctual. It was like, nope, this has this is this is a good story. This has everything. I mean, that's all we were concerned about. Is this a good story? Are there going to be great pictures? Is this going to look great in the magazine? Are our readers going to love it? Like, that was that was it. This is Killed, 
the podcast that brings dead stories back to life. In the mid-90s, Dana Brown went from being a bartender at a media-loved hotspot to grading Carter's assistant at Vanity Fair, one of the biggest magazines in the world. If you want to hear more of that story, I do recommend Dana's memoir, Dilettante, which is as much fun to read as it is to say. And during the heyday of this so-called bullshit industry, Dana estimates that one in four assigned stories never ran. And it was almost always fledgling writers who got killed. You know, we had contributing editors who were on contract, and a lot of them were big-name writers. And they would usually get the plum assignments. You know, they would get the big stories, and those would usually succeed because, A, they were very good writers and very good reporters, and those assignments were built for success. My inbox was flooded with pitches constantly from writers I had either been familiar with or knew about or or some you didn't at all, but it was a great idea. And you would take a chance on it. And it was like development in a film studio. You know, of course, at like a Paramount, like the Tom Cruise movie is going to happen because it's Tom Cruise and they're not going to let that fail. But then you have that kid that comes in with the pitch and you're like, well, let's give this a shot and let him develop this. And it was almost like that. But the high kill rate didn't stop people from trying to get published right alongside writers like Christopher Hitchens, James Walcott, Dominic Dunn. It had to be at such a high level to succeed out of those sort of like nobodies or people who hadn't written for the magazine before. You know, I remember this one woman I'd never heard of her. I think she was married to another writer, and she pitched a story on this sort of oncoming world of micro jets and this concept of all all this new travel with these small planes, and it was going to be cheaper, and it was going to be really easy to get from small cities to small cities. And it sounded like a great Vanity Fair story because it had a little bit of technology. It had these sort of young startups going after the, the big boys. It had really cool pictures of these really cool planes. And it came in and it was just, it was just flat. There was nothing there beyond like, like that pitch that I just said, it was like, oh, that sounds like a cool story, but there was nothing more to it. There were no interesting characters in it. There was no conflict. It was just, here's this thing. And you just go, you know what? I could spend the next six weeks on this going back and forth with the writer to try to get it to a place where it's going to be good enough to run in the magazine, but I just don't think it's going to get there. So that happened a lot. And then that piece sort of had a scarlet letter on it, in a way, and they would try to take it somewhere else. And sometimes sometimes that would work, and sometimes be like, well, look, it's a great story. Other times, you know, editors at other magazines would say, well, why did Vanity Fair kill this? What's wrong with this? And it sort of becomes tainted goods in a way. If all this sounds mythological, that's because it was. When people think about Vanity Fair, they think about Graydon Carter. When they think about Graydon Carter, they think about Vanity Fair. I think it's really one man, Graydon Carter. You know, he brought glamour back to Hollywood in a way that we had forgotten about. Make sure you get the uh, the Emmy in here, Adam. I'm not sure if there's room. Wait till you win one. You'll find room. Everyone in the biz has a Graydon Carter story. Like the time he told a major advertiser to literally shove it up their 
according to war reporter Scott Anderson. He was doing a story on blood diamonds in South Africa. And De Beers almost every month ran an eight-page spread of ads in Vanity Fair, De Beers Diamond Company. And when they heard about this blood diamond story, they said, we're going to take all our advertising away and we're going to keep it out for a year. And Graydon Carr said, fuck you. I don't care. We're running it. Or the time he killed a story on Gwyneth Paltrow. Here's journalist Allie Jones. There was a lot of intrigue surrounding a story about Gwyneth Paltrow that was supposed to come out in Vanity Fair before she and Chris Martin split up. And before the story even came out, which it ultimately did not end up coming out, a lot of information about the story got leaked to page six and the tabloids about how Gwyneth was telling people not to talk to Vanity Fair. And ultimately, Graydon Carter ended up writing an editor's letter about why they weren't publishing this story. And what he said was basically that people were hoping for a big expose on Gwyneth Paltrow. You know, maybe she was having an affair. Maybe she was doing a shady business deal. You know, there had been so much hype surrounding this possible story about her that he felt that the story they had couldn't possibly live up to it. There were also rumors that, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow pressured George Clooney not to do the cover of Vanity Fair until they promised to not run this story. So I don't think we'll ever totally know what exactly happened in, in the backroom dealings there. I would save my my cannon fodder for bigger game than, than, than Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> Bottom line, you never know what Graydon Carter might do. You don't stay on top for nearly a quarter of a century by being predictable now, do you? Magazines are not democracies. There is one person that runs everything. And if you catch him on a bad day and he decides he doesn't like a story, he probably won't come around on it. The writer would turn in their story. You know, you would sit and you would work at the writer and then you would turn it into Graydon and just like sit there and hope for the best. And sometimes it would come back and it would just have his initials on it, meaning it's approved. He read it, but it meant nothing. Sometimes a story would come back and it would say, brilliant, amazing, great work. And that was what you were hoping for. And then a lot of times you would get a story that would say, let's discuss. And that was Graydon's coded language for like, something's wrong. This is Killed, the podcast that brings dead stories back to life. Early on in his tenure at Vanity Fair, Dana Brown got kind of used to being a punching bag for subjects insulted by the magazine's pages. I remember I went to Mr. Chow's in Beverly Hills to meet like a friend of a friend and it was a table of like eight people. And there was a guy who had run a studio who was dating this other person that I kind of knew. And he found out I worked at Vanity Fair and started screaming at me in the middle of dinner because there was a piece in Vanity Fair in that Hollywood issue, it was probably 1995 or 96, that really like went after him and really trashed him and blamed him for a lot of bad movies. And there was there was a blind source in the story who had said some very negative things about him. And he was accosting me. He was like, who was it? 
Who said those things about me? Was it someone from CAA? Who was it? I need to know. And I was like a lowly assistant. I had no idea who this guy was. I didn't know that he'd run a studio at one point. I didn't even read that story. That would definitely happen where a subject thought a writer crossed the line and you would get the brunt of it. But back in 2001, our man Dana had found himself in an awkward situation. He's at a gorgeous meatpacking boutique with a wicked-quilled British journalist. And I'm Adrian Gale Still. And an unsuspecting store owner named Jeffrey Kalinsky. Jeffrey, he had no idea who A.A. Gill was. He just thought it was some, he thought it was like a puff piece on this beautiful store. And the piece was, you know, it was probably about 2,500 words, and it was almost cruel. I mean, it was almost cruel. Like, it would have brought him to tears. And I knew that I would somehow get the blame for this from the owner of Jeffrey. Dana wasn't sure what to do. This was the first big feature he'd ever edited. But he also trusted his boss implicitly. Graydon had wanted A.A. Gill to do his thing at Jeffrey. And he had certainly done his thing. This isn't dinner. You do this because it makes you feel, I don't know, potent, human. Dana just decided to give the story to Graydon unedited and just see where the dial pointed. A few days later, he got the manuscript back. Graydon had written only one word. Brilliant. Oh, well, come what may, Dana thought. Meet me at Mr. Chow, I guess. This was in, I think, August of 2001. And it was going to run in the November issue, so we would close it over the course of September, and it would run in in October, because, of course, the issue comes out a month earlier than its date. And then 9-11 happened. And the morning of 9-11, or a few days later, you know, this piece is sitting there. It's about to go through the production cycle, and Graydon called me down. All of a sudden... It didn't feel quite as cool to be a dick. He said, I just can't. I can't run this story. I can't go after and hurt a small business in New York City post 9-11. And I think Adrian's going to just have to understand that. And I did. I called Adrian and, I, and he said, I totally get it. I totally get it. You know, that was that was killed for a really good reason. And, uh, and I'm actually glad that one was. I wasn't disappointed. In fact, I was sort of relieved that I wouldn't have to deal with this sort of angry phone call from Jeffrey Kalinske, you know, screaming at me. Adrian A.A. A. Gill died from cancer in 2016. Jeffrey Kalinske is currently chief merchant and creative officer at Theory. He declined to comment for this episode. All three locations of Jeffrey closed in 2020 due to the pandemic. When reached via email, Graydon Carter told Killed, quote, I don't recall this at all, but it does have the ring of possibility to it. Don't forget, Vanity Fair writers got paid in full whether their stories ran or not. And we paid well. That said, nobody likes to see their work shelved. But back in the golden era of magazines, back when the internet was just some nerdy thing no one used and social media didn't exist, back when a retailer's career 
could be made or broken by a scathing profile in Vanity Fair. Anything seemed possible, at least from where Dana Brown was sitting. Up until they rolled out the stupid exercise balls. The big shift with the internet was when everyone started having websites and apps and all that. It was limitless the amount of content you could put on there. You know, you were only limited by the size of your staff and how much you could actually get done, but you weren't really limited. Whereas a magazine was very specific. It was X amount of pages. You know, I had the opportunity to get involved more heavily on the digital side of Vanity Fair, you know, in sort of like the late aughts when we were finally sort of coming around and adapting. And I kept saying, no, I was like, I don't want to do it. Like, I'm like a print guy. I like the pace. I don't want to be like woken up in the middle of the night because there's breaking news and have to like whatever. And it was really short sighted of me, frankly, because that's just the way the world is right now. This idea that a breaking news story will hold for a month and you will then read it in a magazine and there's anything fresh. It's like it just doesn't exist anymore. One day, Dana looked up and the sparkle was gone. I remember going over to Condé Nast Entertainment when they first launched that and they had a building over on Broadway. So they weren't in the World Trade Center and their offices looked like, you know, our offices looked like offices and They had like exposed beams and concrete floors. It looked like a tech startup and it was like, and they like ping pong tables and just like all that shit that people were doing in that era. And I remember they had a cereal bar. That was like their big, their big thing. And you would just see loads and loads of kids just sitting there like eating Captain Crunch and Frosted Flakes. And it was like, yeah, that's our cereal bar. It's really popular. The velvet ropes and the golden handcuffs It was all just gone. Had it even existed in the first place? When everything really started collapsing, it like wasn't fun anymore. The gossip dried up. And, you know, when when there is like this existential threat hanging over you for years and years and years, and you just know you're sort of barreling toward the finale, like all that fun stuff just sort of disappears. In 2017, after 25 years at the helm, Graydon Carter stepped down from his role as editor of Vanity Fair. I wanted to take a break. I've worked solidly for the last 39 years. And um, if they have a third act in me, I would like to find out what it is. He didn't stay away for too long. In 2019, Carter launched Airmail, a digital weekly newsletter for the, quote, world citizen. But Dana, he still sings a requiem for the heyday. It was the last time where there were no cell phones, there was no internet. It was the last moment where life could surprise you. It's just a totally different world. Next time on Killed. I think that having a reporter there was not necessarily any weirder than having these two young men in these, you know, perfectly starched white button down with like the white button down collar and the name tag. I mean, it really is like right out of Book of Mormon. Hello. Hi. My name is Jesus Christ. Killed is an Audio Chuck production. 
created and written by Justine Harmon and edited by Alistair Sherman. You can find links to all the published stories featured on the first and second seasons of Killed at killedstories.com. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? <laughs>